August 21st, 2016, is what for Pedro Show.
watch from Pedro show. And then Pedro, but in my pad. Good news, Brother Matt will be joining us again. His schedule has changed, and he will be once again there to aid and abet me in my spiels and music playing. But I'm by myself here, but not, actually not by myself because of the magic of Skype. Thank you, good brothers in Estonia who came up with that. I got Chris GC. Uh, what, what time are you in, Chris? New York City. Wow, what part? Queens, uh, okay. near LaGuardia. The, the Ramones, what were they called? Forest Lawn? Uh, maybe Forest Hills or Forest, Forest Hills. Rockwell. Yeah, Forest Lawn is a graveyard out here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Forest Lawn, okay. And is that near you? Well, Far Rockaway is the complete other side of the borough, very far from me, okay. by the okay. Brooklyn side. And Forest Hills is not that far from me, if that's where they came from. I just saw, as a matter of fact, that the old site of the World's Fair, Flushing Meadow Park, had a big Ramones exhibit, and it was tremendous, and the line was out the door. Wow. Well, they're the hometown team. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and Dee wrote most of the tunes, and he even wrote them tunes when he was out of the band. Wow. <laughs> So we'll, we'll get to that about uh, bass and composition, but uh, I got to say we started the show off with uh, John Coltrane with Mill Jackson doing Bags and Train, which was their nicknames. Mr. God. Paul Chambers on the bass there. God, and, uh, title uh, track from that album. Uh, if you're into vibes, <laughs> into vibes, and uh, what's that movie? I don't, Steve. Who's the guy who wrote all those? He said he wrote all those songs. Steve Allen, and he's Steve uh, Allen. What a great prolific songwriter! Right, right, and he's uh, well, he's going to go play in Catalina. You know, they got this one town Avalon there, and uh, and Pedro, he stops in Pedro, and the guy working in the kitchen is Lionel Hampton. Speaking of, <laughs> he said, "Hey, why don't you come on over and play with me?" Yeah, what, God, what, what's the name of that movie? It's crazy, it's crazy. Uh, Chris. Uh, oh, yeah, then we heard uh, Sawako and uh, Daisuke Miyatani doing Small Planet. Uh, Chris, your, your earliest music memory? I come from a family of musicians, so my dad, my uncle, and especially my grandparents, so it was like the family business, so I was going to be in it. So they were all keyboard players, accordion players, so that's my earliest memory. Is my Like in the family. house, in the pad, you're hearing... I'm hearing piano, I'm hearing a Yeah, they're playing it for you. So this is earlier memory than like a record player or radio or television? Yes, and then it became my dad's uh, swing era records, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, all that stuff. Wow. Okay, so you had some old-timey education in that, and like you're swimming in it, as, as you know, from, from birth, right? Absolutely, including the pressure to read music and to be able to hear chord changes. So that was a big thing early on, and I I had to. I was embarrassed early on. I had to. I realized I had to get it together to not only read music, but be able to hear the chord changes in a song. All right. Did they ever tell you the story how they got to do it with, with, with their folks, musicians also? They weren't, and I'm not really sure. Um, but they sure my grandparents sure had an interesting history as I I think I might have told you once my grandmother played piano in the movie houses because in those That's days right. it was silent movies and she provided 
the the music and then she went on to teach Cecil Taylor his first piano lessons here in Queens because yeah, he was amazing. from Corona, Queens. You know, uh, about her playing in the movie houses, there, there was organ players who did that too, right? Yeah. Because uh, here we got a Warner Theater and it's the last one because these studios had chains. They had their own pads to play their own movies and this was right before the Depression so they put the boiler in uh, but you know the economy tanked, so they never put in the organ. But uh, did she? Uh, because there was a lot of time playing. Was all that stuff scored, or was she improvising? I never found out. And you know, you're probably right. She probably was playing organ in these theaters. Because uh, I, I I've read about roots of jazz. You know, being whorehouse music. You know, there's no radios or, or uh, photographs yet, so they have guys just jamming. You know, to drown out the fuck noises and stuff. And you've got to start improvising. You know, things get kind of tired, right? So you have to start experimenting and keep yourself. So I'm wondering if the same kind of tradition happened in the, the movie houses there. I wonder was that when, when you got the copy of the film, did it come with a copy of a right, score? Right, right. I, I would suspect there's some improvising going on, though. You're right. And or, or maybe even some interpretation because she's also... Was she, like, facing the screen? You know, is she watching the movie? I wonder. I think so, yeah. I just had some friends do something like that. An interesting thing to make music to a, a film in real time. Okay, so, yeah, you felt the pressure to, like, learn how how to write, read music, uh, note chord changes. Yep. What about schooling? Uh, so what happened to me was, of course, all the family being keyboard players, I was going to reject that as the kid. So I <laughs> play anything but that. And because I was born in night, late 1959, so essentially growing up in the 60s, that was the time when guitar was by yeah. storm. Everyone wanted guitar lessons. Right, so that, right. I, I convinced my dad to get me guitar lessons. And then in seventh grade in school, they brought music and they had the orchestral instruments. And I picked the bass. I don't even remember why. But it oh, was wow. The stand up, right? Yeah, the stand-up bass. And wow. quickly became aware of bass guitar and got one of those at home, too. So there I was, a bass player from seventh grade. Okay, what was that guitar? Was it like an acoustic? Like yeah, and everybody style? had the folk, the so-called folk guitar, steel string acoustic Oh, steel string, guitar. okay. I remember we got a nylon string at one point, too, and I thought, oh, this is so much easier to play. <laughs> Don't do that. Stay with the steel string, build up your tops. And... Yeah, unless you want to get it with flamenco. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's listen to some music.
vibrate a thousand pretty streams of all the art I honor these little things that ease the years create masterpiece inspired by the dance engaged in your music captivated by the notes you wrote the definition of what was I like how it is how it comes and goes and the world has changed me but I'll never love any less an enchanted Heartbreak, heartbreaks, 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 heart
We had fun together. We had fun. This I know. One thing I'm beginning to see, I just don't like you no more. I don't like you no more. I don't like you no more. I just don't like you no more. I don't like you no So I'm walking out the door Cause I just don't like it no more
was a log and a pin. You see, and I was both. Not at the same time, alternating. Never did anything ever again, and we never did anything ever again because we couldn't be like the people running in the snow to nowhere, no reason. 
Running in the snow to nowhere, no reason Because we couldn't Because we couldn't And we never did anything ever again And we never did anything ever again And we never did anything ever Again, 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 again Again, 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 again. For Peter's show, we uh, heard Nervous Gender from a 1982 prac tape, uh, Breaking in the New Boy Bill. Screamers after that, live at Target Video, 122 Hours of Fear. This is a band that wouldn't make a record because they, this is 1978, 79, they say, it's over. We're just going to make video. <laughs> video was, I remember there was a time, Chris, when people were spending more on the video than on their records. Oh, man. Remember how that just all ended? Like there was a decision made at Viacom or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. yeah. So my heart bleeds pink lemonade, you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Diane Marie Chloe after that with a thousand pretty strings. Gigi Ban with uh, Choi on bass. 
doing heartbreaks, etc. Andre Williams still in the ring. Bloodshot Records. I don't like you no more. Petra Hayden, Soul Drummer Boy, of course, uh, acapella. Lemon Kittens. I found my old Lemon Kitten collection. You know, a little sentimental for what? The Log in the Pan. Baby Cakes, brand new with, and we never did that, did anything again. And finally, Stefano Please new album, Butterfly Ian. And I get to tour with him in a month in Europe with Sonia de Marnaio. Uh Back to Chris here, uh, talking about his music journey. He uh, breaks the mold from the keyboard of the family tradition and gets a guitar and then moves to stand-up bass in the school orchestra. So what was that experience like, Chris? That was wild. Early on, uh, I, I guess I didn't learn enough about the, the little rubber piece at the bottom that holds the bass in place. So I'm sitting in the class, and the thing slides, and the pegs hit my head, and now blood is coming down my face. Ooh, you took blows. <laughs> so the folks have to come to school and make sure everything's okay. Yeah, the darn thing slid on my head and uh, cut me. <laughs> I still loved it. What, what school? It was just public school in New York, a PS tw- Public School 21 Queens. Yeah, you guys had numbers, huh? Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. We had the Suzuki Met. I actually forgot before that. In yes. They had the Suzuki Met, and I was playing violin and liking that. Wow, so that kind of a tinier version of the stand-up bass. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you play it on the chin, or did you play it on your arm? On the chin, okay. and to this day they say it's the hardest instrument to play because it's so small, you know, a fraction of a move and you're out of tune. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I, I've read somewhere that's why Leo Fender called his uh, uh, bass a precision because yes. it had frets. Yeah. But you know what? Mandolin orchestras had basses and they had frets. Yeah. So cool. I don't think we, Leo really invented it, but that's okay. <laughs> he also didn't play. Amazing. Right. Maybe if you don't know the rules, it's easy to break them. Oh, good point. Yeah. He's a, we owe him so much. But, yeah, there were mandolin. I think they had one of every size. And also, when they got big like that, they tuned them to fourths. And st- That's the other thing about the violin, the fifths, you know, the big drama between the jumps and the strings. Right. Cello still deals with that. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, the range of the cello is amazing. Oh. Can you imagine? I think that's what, not to get down on anybody, but six, seven, eight, nine, twelve string bass players, they're thinking of cello. Yeah. And the only thing is, is the way you got to play the cello, you know, sitting down between your legs. That's the only lame thing. Because the, the range of that instrument is incredible. Right. Remember Woody Allen playing it in the marching band in one of his early movies? <laughs> yeah. But then he moved to... Uh, Licorice stick, right? Uh, clarinet. Yeah. Right? He plays in Dixieland. He has Real Dixieland. life, yeah. He played, but in one of his early movies, that was a famous scene where he's just with a sure. bumble guy and he played cello in a marching band. So every sure. time he sat down to try to play, he had to pick up the chair and move forward. Right, right. It was, <laughs> and also, the bunch of yucks, what was it? They were called uh, the early version of the Electric Light Orchestra. Oh, yeah. They had a couple guys, and one guy played with a sock or some shit on his head, <laughs> and he turned it sideways, you know? <laughs> They did some roll. They did a weird version of Roll Over Beethoven. That was, I didn't really like that band a little later. I mean, they had huge success and everything, but uh, that that first version was trippy. You know, you know what I'm talking about this Chuck Berry song that 
Yes, that was big. Yeah, the sh- always the shtick. In, in there was some stick. There's some definitely some stick. So, uh, you're in the school band. You're doing bass. You're doing violin. On, what kind of band was this? Well, Suzuki was just a program where they took the kid. They took all of us into the auditorium. Suzuki meaning is a Japanese piano. music company. Yeah, Suzuki. I guess they sponsored this. So yeah, they because they uh, own Hammond now. Oh, is that right? That yeah, because my organ man in Chicago took me to the factory and. The, the the parent company or something. Ah, I, I know they make great pianos, too. I mean, you talk about no school in music now. So back then what they did was they took the entire school to the auditorium, brought us one by one to the piano, had to sing back notes, and if you could hear the notes, you were in that Suzuki program, which was a handful of kids. Pretty interesting. Wow. Wow. Okay. So you were in that band. How long did that last? Just sixth grade. Then I moved in New York. You moved to the next school for seventh grade, the junior high. Sure, school. junior high. Right. We went to orchestra. Yeah. And, and what'd you do in orchestra? Did, did you leave the violin or you stayed with the bass? Well, that was when I went to the upright bass. Okay, okay. Because because everybody wanted the violin, all the girls, and also I was like, all right, I'll take on the big bass. <laughs> and then you, you cut the head, cut the top of your head, but you still you still dug it. Now the gigs, they were like the school things, right? You didn't School have to do marching band. <laughs> and at home, I'm just beginning to discover rock and roll that's on the radio. I remember buying a Rod Stewart album. But the really transformative thing for me was it just happened to be the time when the big first 50s revival came back with a band, Sha Na Oh, yeah, yeah. They're the Woodstock so movie. Way into the 50s music and all that stuff. Why do you think? And that led me to ultimately... No, no. Chris, I'm interested. Why, why do you think that was? Uh, I think I, I've always been attracted, like, the, you know, the bass is great because it's both the rhythm and the melody side, sure. and I just always had an ear for harmony, and something about those 50s records really clearly spelled out early harmony, okay. and so I was drawn to that, and those vocal groups, you know, the the platters doing, uh, what was the Jerome Kern tune, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, you know, yeah. suddenly you're realizing, wow, there's some cool chord changes going on. Wow. So... What about a band outside school? Not until just garage stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, like garage. Yeah, music. just garage. You know, uh, I, I got it. It was the weirdest thing because I was a 50s nerd and harmony nerd, and I somehow fell into this Pink Floyd garage band. I didn't know anything about them. Or they just told me what to play. <laughs> I remember everything was in a sharp key. You had so an electric bass by this time. I know actually bass. There was a, a Fender copy called Carlo Rebelli. Nice uh-huh. and what kind of amp? Um, PV was kicking butt then. They had that <laughs> Combo 300. That thing changed a lot of bass amplification. I think a bunch of companies copied their EQ and all, but it was a great combo of self-contained, heavy as heck. Yeah. What a really good sounding Combo 300. And these guys told you what to play. You were covering Pink Floyd songs. Right, but mainly in, uh, you know, because the, it was in the family business, I think I'd start to go on weddings and casuals with my dad, so learning standards, uh, you know, learning the tunes. This is before digital, so they have stacks of music. Oh, it was a crazy. I, it, I Did you have a fake book? Yeah, oh my God, we knew this guy in a music store, and he always had, like, the under-the-counter secret fake books, <laughs> right, right. and then they were illegal, and you couldn't right. wait to get that. That was a big deal in the old days. I don't think people understand. Big deal, and you'd have guys that transcribe stuff on the radio, so this was where the only way you were going to get the tunes that were playing on the radio in written form. It was right. a big deal. Yeah, and even, I think, to get a copyright, you had to have a lead sheet. Yeah. 
Richard Hell told me this funny story when he, uh, for Blaine Generation. He sings a song to the guy, and the guy says, "You're not singing any notes." <laughs> he, could, he said he couldn't make him a lead sheet because <laughs> he wasn't singing any notes. <laughs> oh God! Oh yeah, that's funny. Uh, so you had a, this was this was some serious training then. Yeah, yeah, got into that that song, but I think early on, and um, so you're like in high school and playing in your pops band. Playing, doing gigs with him. Yeah, couldn't really find music. I'm trying to think. It wasn't until high school, yeah, that I met some kids that were actual musicians. And then, yeah, we started to really get into it. And the big transformation for me was stepping from the 50s and discovering by coming up the ladder 20 years later, getting to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And that changed my life. That was. Well, there's a bass player. <laughs> yeah, that was genius. And then the Beatles after that. But man, did that. When you take the jump in music from 50s to 60s and you yeah. think about it, it was one, six, four, five changes to what those guys were doing, that was big. Yeah, right. Brian Wilson, incredible composer. Oh. Yeah. And his sense of how, you know, but there, there's some overlap there. I hear some 50s in his stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And the great thing in that movie bio of his, one of the movie bios, I remember the scene where the engineer says to his father, Mr. Mr. Wilson, I haven't heard seen a talent like this since John Coltrane, because I guess he engineered for Coltrane. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, so pushing it. Now, from uh, uh, the base, you get uh, out of school. Uh, yeah. Yeah, where does music take you? I go to college, and right. uh, this, this is another fortuitous turn. In, in Queens here, there's a college called York College in, in Jamaica. Okay. Jamaica, Queens is the first giant middle-class African-American neighborhood in the country. It's huge, and this is where all the jazz guys live. Louie, Ella, Milt Hinton, even James Brown had a judge. So now I'm in school in this area, and... It, the place is filled with jazz musicians. I, I go as a stupidly probably as a j major music major with jazz studies. Yeah, and I'm just surrounded by it. Uh, Omar Hakim, the drummer. His yeah, dad, yeah. His dad would come in with his original Count Basie charts, and suddenly <laughs> I'm immersed in jazz, and it's just so much fun. And uh, yeah, that was that turn. Will Jackson's brother. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Was in my class. I played with him all the time. He was a drummer. Wow. Yeah, the judge, you know, in the zine, I read a thing on him. And he was like, always hit the root on the one. <laughs> was like, you know, well, you know, thinking about jazz and the bass in those days, because they didn't use the kick drum to hold time. They dropped them like bombs. Right. So the bass man, it was a whole different world, right? Bass oh. man was the propulsive cat. That pulse, oh my God! And you get talk, talk about Mr. PC uh, Paul Chambers. I mean, you know, and but the, also his harmonic uh, development. Oh, of, could you imagine? Because he's hanging around with those guys, Coltrane and those piano players. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Now the left hand on the piano. Still, yeah, they did riffs and stuff. I but I still think the bass man was the propulsive guy in those, especially uh, nowadays the way uh, kick drums used on trap sets. It was just a, a whole nother world. Uh, part of it was, I think, just the nature of the instrument, too. And yeah. the, you know what I'm talking about. It, uh, 
was kind of felt, and they didn't really have ways of getting it really that loud. You had to make room for it in a way. It's really interesting. One of my favorite stories ever is when I first interviewed Joe Osborne, the legendary L.A. session guy, and he literally came from an era, and when he first got at one of the early Fender basses and he's playing it, and literally engineers were saying to him, no, no, the bass is meant to be felt, not heard. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with this instrument. You could hear the pitches all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, I, I've read stuff about uh, Charlie Mingus not digging it. God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really. Uh, in fact, uh, the story about Atlantic Records wanting him to collaborate with Stanley Clark, and I guess he wants to show him uh, take the A train. Stanley Clark, I don't want to learn to take the A train. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it, trippy, huh? Yeah, and it really the encouraging thing there, because Mingus was staunch anti-electric, was at the very end of his life when Joni did the Mingus album right, right. collaboration with him. And reportedly heard the Jocko tracks and liked them. I thought, oh, finally, at the last minute, he recognizes a bass guitar. Well, you know, for me, Chris, that's Jocko's best stuff. Oh, me It's too. really happening on that record. Oh, my God. Really, really happened. His horn arrangements. Oh, my God. See, that was him, yeah, in full bloom. Yeah. Yeah, but Nick uh, is composed on the piano, though, right? I think so. That's that's yeah. one of the giants, my God. By, by reading uh, Beneath the Underdog, it seems that it's that way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, his... Well, okay, so you're immersed at the uh, York School there with all the jazz. and But were you hearing... The, what about guys like uh, on the radio, like James Jamerson, Motown? Yeah, I mean, I... I think it was because you know on. Miles he gets uh, from um, the Apollo he gets Michael Henderson for the Michael man I saw Michael a couple of years ago here in New York and it's the closest I've seen to Jameson ever and I was good buddies with James Jr. who could really do his dad but yeah. man Michael had it down it was scary I really like Michael with Miles uh, there's something really incredible I guess he was Stevie Wonder's bass man and Miles I'm gonna take this guy. <laughs> yeah, right in the basement of the Apollo. He came into the dressing room downstairs and said, I'm taking your effing bass player. And, and Steve <laughs> didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to prevent it. <laughs> well, you know, that's incredible. And, uh, I mean, he's, 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 he's playing so econo, but it's right. You know, it's just what you need. It's like when you see a, a painting from Vincent. Uh, it was one of his self-portraits. And he only takes like two or three strokes to make an eye. Genius. And you know about, about Michael Henderson. Incredible. Look, we're at the end of the first hour of the August 21, 2016 edition of Wild Theater Show. Special guest Chris Juicy. Hold tight for hour two. August 21, 2016. It's the second hour of the Wild Pedro Show. <laughs>
Pedro Show, start off the second hour with a mascot brand new, Zem. Uh, St. Outrageous from a pop group after that. Brand new space with a faster way to travel. Latest album from King Champion Sounds, Spy Soup. And finally, Psychic Temple with I Don't Need Nothing. Back with Chris and his journey through music. So, um, yeah, we took a little angle there. Um, in your day, who do you think the big innovators was on bass? I mean, I know we were just talking about Mr. Jamerson. I mean, I do believe Jamerson's the towering figure. Um, Carol Kay and Chuck Rainey, they did great things, but there's just something about Jamerson, having that jazz background and having that freedom and then the relationship he had with those Motown guys that in that particular section, he was the one that flew free and high, you know, and the drummer, Benny Benjamin, was just yeah. going to keep it real simple. So he's the big creator, I think, on, on that side of things. I mean, yeah. I, now, he comes from the stand-up bass, right? Maybe he didn't play the electric bass like a stand-up. He didn't like it. And the, the famous story when Chuck Graney first got to... Uh, but Musicians Institute in L.A. when it first opened, and he, and he talked Chuck, uh, James into coming to do the clinic, and to everyone's shock, James went in and trashed the electric and said, forget that, learn the upright. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So he didn't really like... Hmm. 
I mean, I think he did like secretly loved it and the fact that it was a new instrument and he was creating on it. But yes, yeah, so much of that comes from electric. I'm really fascinated by those first generation electric players that are influenced by upright. There's a guy yeah. named Wilbur Bascom who played on Jeff Beck's album. Uh, I forget, not the one after Blow by Blow. He completely took Sam Jones and put it on the electric bass. Very cool. Sam Jones. Wow. Yeah. Hey, uh, are you familiar with, uh, there's a 70s band from England called Backdoor, and this Colin Hodgkinson. Yes, very creative guy. A lot of requests for interviews for him over the years. Is that right? Yeah, we got him at at the one point. You know, Adam Yock from the Beastie Boys turned me on to him, and... You know, because they were getting to play their instruments again, the uh, Check Your Head album. Ah, okay. And after rapping, yeah, they started playing Adam Yauch was the bass man. Actually, he taught all the guys, I guess, when they were hardcore kids. But he told me Daryl Jennifer from the Bad Brains kind of showed him how to do bass. But he turned me on. Now, this is the idea, a good thing about community. It's hard to know all the stuff that's going on. Exactly. So you need cats to turn you on to stuff. Even uh, in my position, I learn stuff every day. It's the greatest. Yeah, I don't think... Sometimes I hear this stuff, oh, there's too many bands. I mean, what's the alternative? Not enough bands? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to some music.
Yes, I'm new to New New Orleans, new to New New Orleans, new to New New Orleans, new to New New Orleans. Born here in the 60s, say it make you whistle. Changes have jerked you out of your roots by the fistful. You tell new folks they got nothing to prove, no matter how long they stick around. They're always gonna be new to new New Orleans, new to new New Orleans, new to new New Orleans, new to. Cemetery is a party coaster dime a dozen. If you can't eat it, it's in a pot or an oven. The weather is fickle. Give it a minute. Oh, how long or what you grew, you'll always be new. New to new New Orleans. New to new New Orleans. New to. Baby and honey, the sweetest of voices. You might wonder how this boat floats. We're amphibians. No matter how long you wonder, if you stick around, you'll always be new to new New Orleans. New to new New Orleans. New to new New Orleans. New to.
Watt from Pedro Show. Side by Side, Jad Fair, Hi-Fi Club, and Cap Michigan collaboration there. New to New New Orleans, Dick Deluxe, his brother, uh, friend and brother Steve. Dual Decibel System, Holy Roller, live. That uh, They were on last week from Cleveland. Uh, End of the Road, the Higgum Flyers, Dagger Moth, Birthmark, and finally Catch My Fall, Cut. Back with Chris here, we're talking about about bass. Uh, now, um, do you remember the first gigs you went to, uh, like rock and roll ones in arenas? To see a band? Yeah, of course. Um, Not to well, like, uh, you know, chuck a popcorn as, as, a, as a witness, as a spectator. Wow, I don't. I just not remember that. Maybe sort of Chicago. <laughs> Chicago. Okay, okay. Uh, was the bass player the singer in that band? He killed yeah, himself. Yes, it's huh? what, what an amazing bass player and singer. I think he accidentally shot himself or something. No, that was the guitar player Terry Kath. Very oh, okay. Sick. Well, you got a better memory than me. Anyway, <laughs> they, I know they were amazing musicians. Yeah, that was again at the jazz rock angle, blood, sweat, and tears. That whole thing. Right. Right. Anyway, if you went to those gigs, remember the... I mean, there's no real PA systems. So if you see pictures of those gigs, I mean, there's like five, six bass amps, SVTs. They're having to power the whole sound off the stage. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the Beatles always moan about that. Oh, yeah, right. When they, they played... All uh, about the, he was in Candlestick Park in San Francisco playing, and they said, what are your memories of playing there? That was the last Beatles date. And he said, I just remember the frustration because nobody could hear us, and they were screaming, and we couldn't hear ourselves, man. <laughs> they were trying to power that whole gig. With just in fact, like, Jack Bruce once told me what yeah. killed is the band he loved that he had with Tony Williams and uh, the Lifetime band. He said, we were just ahead of the sound technology of the time. Just uh-huh. couldn't make it work. Yeah. Because, uh, and, you know, I can imagine, you know, the, to adding to the mystery of the bass player. Yeah, because, uh-huh. I mean, the sound. And, and also the acoustics of the place. They're sports arenas, you know, and auditoriums and maybe for swing bands or something, but with all that loud volume, oh man, it was so, for me, because I didn't know about clubs, I'm 13 in 1970, so I only know arena rock until punk movement, and then I go to clubs, and all of a sudden the bass guitar, you can tell, well, you know, you're close enough to see it's got four strings, but you can also feel it. Yeah. You know, it's pushing into your, it was a, that was a big changer for me. Uh, who, who, yeah. was the, who were the players that got you early on? Well, with me, of course, it's the records, right? Arena rock, it's, it was hard to hear any bass. But on records, and I got to say, especially from overseas, from England, they mixed the bass up big time. Yeah. Our, our bass was kind of blurry, you know, Grand Funk or Creedence. I mean, I can hear Stu Cook now, great bass lines, but in those days... It was so bad. I mean, I was so confused that I, I uh, wore the singer's shirt. I thought if I wear flannels, maybe D. Boone would still like me because <laughs> I can't figure out what this guy is doing oh, on the yeah. bass, you know. But I could hear Jack Bruce. I could hear uh, Andy Fraser, yep. uh, uh, John Entwistle, mm. Geezer Butler, even Pete Quaife, uh, Chaz Chandler. Oh, you know... 
Tony Visconti. You you just had a story. Uh, man, I, I don't know what it was about over there. Now with over here though, R and B, no problem. And also the guitar players made room for him. Yeah. You listen to Sly and the Family Stone. You listen to a lot of that uh, Booker T with Duck and uh, the, the most Motown stuff. Uh, even Bootsy. You know, just the, in the composition, they made room already, but also the mixers. I, it was just a different, you know, it was dance music or something. You wanted people, well, kind of like uh, the feel it thing like you were talking about before. <laughs> it's that James Brown ethic of everybody has their parts in that music. and that's Yeah. Awesome. Now, he's a drummer, too. And think yep. about a, a drum player who plays a trap kit. You are playing several instruments at once. Yeah. What's the closest note to us on the stage? It's the kick drum. I know we got strings like a guitar, but we're actually like kind of a drummer. Tune drum, absolutely a tune drum. That's what all the Latin bass breaks say. We're a tune drum. Tune drum. That's a great idea. Once I saw Mahavishnu Orchestra, and uh, Billy Collum had a bunch of, dr I think they were tuned, Octoban or something. Oh yeah, <laughs> was like a, but like, <laughs> like plexiglass, eight tubes, you know. And <laughs> he, he could play like uh, I don't know, yeah, melodies. <laughs> yeah. He also had three kick drums, but he didn't play. I like, depending on which way he turned, it wasn't like he played all three at the same time. <laughs> hey, at the second hour of 2016, August 21 edition of Waffle Pedro Show, special guest Chris Jesse. Hold tight for hour three. August 21, 2016. It's the third hour of the Watt for Pedro show. And I'm going to bring you the ultimate home sequence in its entirety from Citizen Clarity.
from Pedro Show. Yeah, we heard the ultimate home sequence entirely from Citizen Claim. That's Law, Aristocracy, Landlock, Orange Pill, Smoke Totem, and finally Pilchard, Law 2, and Graze. Back with Chris. And we're talking about a bass and uh, some some strange stuff. Uh, we're talking about some 70s stuff. Because another innovation of 70s is brother Larry Graham with the with the slapping, oh. which was a, which was really hurt James Jamerson, right? Yeah, it was. A, yeah, it's different, completely different. Yeah, not the same. Put the bass in that direction. Everybody wanted to slap in. And and, and in fact, uh, we just lost brother Johnson, uh, Lewis Johnson. Yep. And his brother, right, said, "I wish he wouldn't have recorded on ever, other people's records because that was our sound." That was the deepest part of that cover story to me. Yeah, yeah, that? yeah. That was intense, and because of that, it was hard for James Jamerson to find work. 
Yes, the round, round strings, and he wouldn't put them on. That's right, that whole story when he got to L.A. and yeah. Nathan even brought him a set, and he just didn't want to use it. You know, you couldn't blame the guy. On the one no, not at all, not at all. But, you but he to, is, yeah. I think his big answer to all that was that baseline on what's going on. Oh, my God, genius. genius. I was just talking to Joe Wobble. He's coming over for a tour, and he's got a signature sound himself. And, yeah, he loves that. We I did have the pleasure that. of interviewing him in New York years ago. I missed Joe Wobble. Wow. Yeah. Well, he's coming back around uh, uh, September, October. Look for him playing live. Oh, so, some kind of invader of the heart prodge or something. He told me he recorded a triple album. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I love yeah. him because he loves bottom like us. Give me bottom. Give me bottom, right. Well, you know, there's an isolated, on YouTube.com, there's an isolated uh, James Jamerson bass line of the Marvin Gaye. What's going on? Yeah, oh, that's great. I mean, we had this, when we did the cover story and got into the Motown vault, that was yeah. just an unforgettable day of hearing it, you know, mixed that way. Now, you know about the story about him laying on his back? Supposedly, yeah, that he was either drunk or tired and just was, you know, ripping, yeah. <laughs> on his back. On his back, my God. On the deck. <laughs> I think it's a bitch thing. Here, let's hear some more music.
You see me alone tonight. My face has betrayed me again. The garage mechanic who promises to fix my car and never does. My face that my friends tell me is so full of character. My face I have hated for so many years. My face I have made an angry contract to live with, though no one could love it. My face that I wish you would bruise and batter and destroy, napalm and throw acid in it so that I might have another or be rid of it at last. I drag peacock feathers behind me to erase the trail of the moon. Those tears I shed for myself sometimes in anger. There is no pretense in my life. The man who lives with me must see something beautiful, like a dark snake coming out of my mouth. Or love the tapestry of my actions, my life, this body, this face. They have nothing to offer but angry insistence, their presence. I hate them, want my life to be more. Hate their shadow on even my words. I sow my soul for good plumbing and hot water, I tell everyone. And my face is soft, open. A feathering of snow against the cold black leather coat, which is night. You, night. My face against the chilly expanse of your back. Learning to live with what you're born with is the process, the involvement, the making of a life. And I have not learned happily to live with my face, that Diane which always looks better on film than in life. I sternly accept this plain face and hate every moment of that sternness. I want to laugh at this ridiculous face of lemon rinds and vinegar cruets, of unpaved roads and dusty file cabinets, of the loneliness of Wall Street at night and the desert of school on the holiday. But I would have to laugh alone in a cold room, prefer the anger that at least for a moment gives me a proud profile. Always, I've envied the rich, the beautiful, the talented, the go-getters of the world. I've watched myself remain alone, isolated, a fish that swam through the net because I was too small, but remained alone in deep water because the others were caught, taken away. It is so painful for me to think now, to talk about this. I want to go to sleep and never wake up. But self-pity could trail us all, drag us around on the bottom of shoes like squashed snails, so that we might never fight. And it is anger I want now, fury to direct at my face and its author, to tell it how much I hate what it's done to me, to contemptuously, sternly, brutally make it live with itself, look at itself every day, and remind itself that reality is. Learning to live with what you're born with, noble to have been anything but defeated. The cry and anger and silence will hold us above beauty, though we bend down often with so much anguish for a little beauty. A word like the blue night, the night of rings covering the floor and glinting into the fire, the water, the wet earth. The age of songs, guitars, angry busloads of etched tile faces, old gnarled tree trunks, anything with the beauty of wood, tea, lemon, cherry. I lost.
lost my children because I had no money, no husband. I lost my husband because I was not beautiful. I lost everything a woman needs, wants, almost before I became it. My face shimmering and flat as the moon with no features. I look at pictures of myself as a child. I look lumpy, unformed, like a piece of dough. And it has been my task as a human being to carve out a mind, carve out a face, carve out a shape with arms and legs, to put a voice inside and to make a person from a presence. And I don't think I'm unique. I think a thousand of you at least can look at those old photos, reflect on your life, and see your own sculpture at work. I have made my face as articulate as I can. And it turns out to be a peculiar face with too much bone in the bridge of the nose, small eyes, pale lashes, thin lips, wide cheeks, a rocky chin. But it's almost beautiful compared to the sodden mass of dough I started out with. I wonder how we learn to live with our faces. They must hide so much pain, so many deep trenches of blood. So much that would terrorize and drive others away if they could see it. The struggle to control it articulates the face. And what about those people with elegant noses and rich lips? What do they spend their lives struggling with? Am I wrong? I constantly ask myself to value the struggle more than the results, or only to accept a beautiful face if it has been toiled for. Tonight. I move alone in my face. Want to forgive all the men whom I've loved who betrayed me. After all, the great betrayer is that one I carry around each day, which I sleep with at night. My own face, angry building I fought to restore, imbued with arrogance, pride, anger, and scorn. To love this face would be to love a desert mountain, a killer, rocky, water heart. No trees anywhere. Perhaps I do not expect anyone to be strange enough to love it. Thank、you
rusty necklace and hatched egg earring. Half a heart charm with a silvery thing dangling from it. I kept them all, but of the bunch, what I recall the wing, the wing, the winged thing has been the most heart rending, though it was meant to fly. Freedom wouldn't be.
How's everybody feeling on tonight? All right, dude. Thanks a lot for being here together. All right, let's go.
Watch for Peter Show. Last music for this edition. Adios, Sesame. Death Hymn number nine. Got to play with them last night here in Pedro. My last gig, my town before tour. Mixed Dimensions Up from Ovet. A Moment's Thought. That's a Dan McGuire in Toledo. I had to learn to live with my face. Marshweed, brand new, find a keeper. Happy's with Hannah Song. Very be careful. Very be careful. Uh, live uh, Ayanado. Style Musicus. Bajo el palo el mango. So, uh, yeah, there's the bass, huh? Bajo. With a stick and a mango. <laughs> Maybe some kind of percussion. And then finally, 40 Ways from Sunday. Mow your lawn. Chris, your opinion. Future bass. Oh, that's a tough one, my God. Because we're in such an era of, of looking back. And I think that's good because the foundation as a foundation is always got to be there and it's always got to be essential. So we credit the experimental guys because they bring a vocabulary to the instrument, but I still see it as it's going to be foundation and hopefully it's going to be human played. Human played and foundation. So by saying foundation, in a way, to me, I'm hearing bass goes on first. It seems though, in reality... Or maybe the older days. Maybe I'm out of step, but bass was added on last. Not R&B. R&B, I think bass was first a lot. But, uh, so, uh, now don't get me wrong, because I'm taking your side. And then by foundation, what about even more ahead of the trip than foundation? What about composition? What about... Uh, songwriters writing on the bass. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, well, I'll say this about when, whenever the bass goes on, as long as you're playing the putting it on as a foundation role, that's fine with me. Because as I said, Stevie wanted to edit it last a lot. As far as composition, yeah, that that's always intrigued me as a wonderful artist. Now, uh, young Esperanza Spaulding. Yeah, and she's told me that when she writes, she just hears compositionally bass and and melody. So yeah, I think that's. I love what's coming from the bottom, you know, the botany sting. Yeah, I like the fact that bass players write because they're going to have that different perspective. You know, Flea turned me on to this cat. I think he's from England. He's uh, He goes under the name of Square Pusher? Yes, that's a whole interesting He's, he's a one-man band, right? Yep, electronica, DJ, yeah. But fundamentally, live. he's a bass man, right? Yeah, plays the bass live when he's up there, even with his electronics, and, and makes that a key component. You know, when you humanize any of this stuff, I, I might not have been as accepting of electronica and totally mechanized music at first, but I knew what was going to happen, and it's happening. Humans are getting in there and making interesting music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember, I think what you're referring to is like in the 90s, there was this word drum and bass, and yeah. there was this guy telling me about this, Hey, what? Uh, come, come up to West Hollywood in the Viper Room, and uh, there's gonna be drums and bass. Okay, so I go and make the thirty mile schlep, you know, and uh, it's two guys in sweaters with a lot of machines. <laughs> they don't get it. No, no, no. You got. It. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there wasn't really uh, th this thing you're talking about getting the humans involved. I mean, there was yeah, there were some humans wearing sweaters. <laughs> No, if you're a player, you just don't understand the people that just push a button 
and play something that's going to sound the same every time you push that button. It's just a disconnect. Yeah. But but the sides are merging now, and there are, you know there's like people like Square Pusher that are bringing both elements in. Or 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 there's for me there's still room for the you know I saw William Parker do his Testament live, forty five minute man in a stand up bass. Wow. And uh, it, yeah, it was when the shitting factory was on Houston, and it was sweaty, and, and maybe uh, yeah, like a Schwitz, you know, maybe not the most comfortable, but it was it was passion. It was, there was something about that. Yeah, it made a huge impression on me. And, uh, you know, just as much as a lot of things that got me to do what I do. And you're right, there is, it's different than uh, people throwing a switch. Yeah, and Victor Bailey recently told me when he was at Berkeley and Miroslav Vitus came in with a solo concert. And he's like, I'm not going to that. There's no way a, a solo bass could, upright bass could carry a show. And he said his friend had a ticket, so he went and it blew him away. Just the, the energy and the and the passion and the intent, yeah, it, it can happen. Remember that record, the the bass. It was like a box collection, and it was mainly that, just upright avant garde guys playing, and it was so powerful. I didn't even understand it when I got it, but Bertram Turetsky, I got to do a gig with him. Oh man, that's a big teacher. He man. told me there was cats like composers that wrote pieces just for him. God, <laughs> very heavy. <laughs> But uh, uh, I, li- I like this thing about Foundation. Though. There was something great. You know, I also want to say uh, in the zine at the back, uh, tell me about John Goldsby. Man, this cat, he's, he's, that's firsthand stuff, man. That's, that's going to the well. I yeah, love he's this been cat. with us from day one and uh, always just wanted to do that jazz column and, and share in the wealth. And uh, he's in a great, you know, you talk about how the European scene unfortunately pales ours, especially when it comes to jazz. He's in one of those great European government funded big bands. I mean, we have nothing like that here. Even no. the orchestra struggle. We have one band, the Lincoln Center Jazz Band. Where are all the other jazz bands in this country? There's no support. But John is fortunately in a good one in Germany. Well, man, he is such a, you know, jewel in your in your thing, man. I love it. The woodshed too, you know. It's it's not all pretendo and pose. It's it's the bottom line, you know. You get wet with this stuff. Jump in. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. Love, and uh, who's the other guy? Ed uh, Friedland. Ed Friedland. He just started one on early R and B bass players, so we're following right now the arc of this. Right, right. Very, very interesting too, man. The. I know the back is where the ads are and stuff, but also these guys, man, people, when you check out Bass Player, check out the back, because John and Ed, and but all, all this stuff, man, it, to me, uh, like we were saying at the beginning, community, you get yeah. turned on to stuff, Yalk turning me on to fucking Colin, you know, yeah. and here, I'm, I was many years uh, down the road from <laughs> Adam, and, you know, that's one thing about getting less younger. You think you know it all. You gotta let go of that. <laughs> oh yeah, no. The more you learn, the less the more I learn, the more I realize I don't what I don't know. There's so much to learn about. That's that's great advice to close on. Chris, I wanna thank you so much for being on the show. Beautiful. Uh it's been the August twenty one, twenty sixteen edition of Wild for Pedro Show. People, keep your powder dry.